Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. A founder's journey has its highs and lows. It's not a linear path. Every founder is also a regular person, filled with high hopes and big dreams. That middle part of their story, before they reach the top, is where we can catch them at their fullest potential. What we learn of their past gives us a glimpse into their future. This is Founder Stories. Today's founder was headed down a path any parent would dream of. Harvard undergrad, a first job at Goldman Sachs, followed by a gig at the Carlyle Group, one of the most prestigious asset managers in the world. But through all that, he felt drawn to a very different calling, flipping burgers. With his brother in tow, Andrew Krumholtz started opening fast food franchises and realized that it's not only lucrative, it's life-changing. This is the story of Delight Restaurant Group. My name's Andrew Krumholtz, and I'm a restaurant franchisee for Wendy's and Taco Bell. I grew up down in South Florida. I uh, grew up in a family of six children. And it was a little bit of an unorthodox upbringing. We were definitely that family in town. My mom, it started with a minivan and then progressed from there. We had a Eurovan. We had a 16-passenger club wagon that we would all get bussed around in. We'd get let off at school, and the two doors would come bursting open, and a bunch of kids would come flying out. My parents with six kids definitely dedicated a good chunk of their life to, to their children and have some super talented siblings around me. Some people will talk about this breaking bread experience of, of bringing them together, and, and that's all nice. But honestly, I just love food as an end in itself. I've always loved food. There's this question, eat to live or live to eat. There's no question where I fall on that spectrum. I definitely live to eat. Growing up with six children, there wasn't necessarily a given dinner time per se. Food would essentially get left out. People would come as they wished. If you had baseball practice or you had homework, you'd work around what worked best for you. You'd grab your food and you'd keep going. Getting a reservation for eight people is definitely a task. Growing up, went to we call it quick service restaurants now. We'd go to Wendy's, Taco Bell, and really all of them a ton as kids. My favorite thing on the Wendy's menu is a spicy chicken sandwich. To this day, whenever we have some exciting milestone, we close an acquisition. For example, you will definitely find my brother and I in the parking lot eating Wendy's spicy chicken. My favorite item on the Taco Bell menu is a quesarito. 
which you have to order through the mobile app now. And it is the best things of a quesadilla and a burrito all rolled into one. There's really some incredible food coming out of these Wendy's and Taco Bell. And it's a dream job that I get to go through drive throughs and taste food for a living. Early on, I struggled a lot with having these super talented siblings. Do you try to emulate that? Do you try to reject that? And so as a middle schooler, I wasn't always the best behaved. I definitely had my fair share of trouble. Going into high school, changed schools, went to the high school, and I had this opportunity of like a reset where I could say, all right, I'm in this new environment. Let me try to work hard and see what happens. Started working hard and good things started to happen and realized, hey, I think I can actually do this. And from there, got accepted to Harvard. And I remember going to Harvard, I thought, that, well, this is terrifying. I may be bottom quartile in my house. How am I going to manage it at this school? I went to Harvard for economics, thought I wanted to do something in business, but didn't know exactly what that meant. And it was a liberal arts degree. So the closest thing you could get to taking something practical was you'd have to go to MIT for an accounting class, which I did. And sometimes we'd sneak over to the business school and stop in on some presentations from business leaders that were coming through that. Always been attracted to business because of the stories, whether that's creating and innovating with product or stories of pulling off some transaction that seemed hard to pull off. Just always attracted to the characters and the stories around it. I remember in high school picking up a book called Barbarians at the Gate, which was about the largest leverage buyout of its time when KKR, which is a private equity firm, figured out a way to position itself to, to take over one of the iconic consumer brands in the U.S., so Nabisco owns uh, Oreo cookies, a bunch of cracker type companies like Ritz Crackers or Teddy Grahams. At that time, private equity industry and the leveraged buyout industry was evolving in its life cycle. And taking over such an iconic brand like that was truly unique at the time. What a leveraged buyout is, it's acquiring a business and doing it with debt and equity financing. So if you think about buying a home, for example, it's very similar. So someone may buy a house for $100. They may put in $30 or $40 of equity, so their own capital. The rest may be in the form of a mortgage, which is the same as debt. So people apply that same principle to a leveraged buyout when they buy a company using debt and equity. And the goal of that is you acquire the business, you try to improve the revenue and earnings of that business over a period of time, say that's five years or so. And at the end of that, you have the ability to exit it. And the benefit of using leverage in those situations is that you're able to magnify the returns on the equity portion that you put in up front. I try to always be mindful about what I know and what I don't know. And one of the things coming with a liberal arts education is there was a lot about corporate finance that I did not know. And so I had my eyes set in college on going to do investment banking at Goldman Sachs. I always viewed that as, as, as the top job. And, and if I could only get there, I'd learn corporate finance and be able to speak that language fluently and have the ability to work on some really large and exciting transaction that as a 22-year-old, I probably had no business being a part of, but would have the chance to work on M&A or debt or equity financing right out of school. I got the job at Goldman Sachs as a summer intern first. So that was after my junior year in school. That was 2008. The world was in a good place. They hired a bunch of interns, spent the summer there, and thought everything went well. 
And then as we were waiting to get full-time job offers back, that's when Lehman collapsed. And I remember calling in and they said, I think you'll have a job here as long as we will still exist. And fortunately, that was the case. And I was able to join there full-time after graduation. The issue was 2009 and the Great Recession was happening. And so they went from a period of overhiring before to underhiring there. And so the world came back pretty quickly, but the size of our analyst class was sized for as if there was a great financial recession happening. So we got absolutely crushed on the, on the workload front. So when I was at Goldman Sachs as an analyst, my job was my life. I was at a point in time where you're coming out of college, you don't have a family yet. And so you go there with the sole focus of learning as much as possible. People like to joke that you get four or five years of experience in those two years as an analyst in their program. But you look at it and you look at the hours you work and you think that kind of does make sense because work weeks were often uh, 80 to 120 hours. And that was before the days that they have today of Saturdays off. That, that didn't exist back when I was there. I really learned uh, corporate finance in and out and was able to build that skill set as a foundation. So going forward in my career, I wouldn't have those insecurities about do I truly understand what somebody's talking about if they're talking about different types of valuation analysis. And if they're talking about cash flow, I'm not having to think about, okay, what does that actually mean? And instead, was able to f focus on the content of the discussion, which is where things truly mattered. So it was a really good foundation for me in terms of my understanding of finance. In my analyst class in investment banking, everybody except one person left after two years. And a common job that people would go to, which I went into, was private equity. In private equity, you're in the position of investor and you get to do the diligence on the business if you go into their associate programs, which are their, their entry-level programs. So you go through that whole diligence process and then you also get to see the deal process of what's involved with raising debt financing, what's involved with doing due diligence on the finance and accounting and legal side of the business. And then you take that deal through acquisition and then on the other side of it, there's the portfolio management side of it. And so staying on top of these businesses and, and getting updates and trying to help with strategy for the business so that you can continue to grow them in the years ahead. I did a two-year program at TPG Capital. Even if you haven't heard of them, you've heard of businesses that they've owned. So they started with buying Continental Airlines. They've owned Petco. They've owned J. Crew, And that was really awesome training experience because I got to understand what it was to go through the deal process. So I learned corporate finance at Goldman and private equity, got to learn the deal business. And then from there, I actually went to a hedge fund that was part of the Carlisle Group. I got to have lots of different reps looking at businesses. So in private equity, if you do one deal a year, you're being productive. At a hedge fund, you're constantly learning new industries, evaluating new businesses. So you get to see a lot more and you build comfort with types of businesses that you're comfortable with and then maybe spaces that you don't want to invest in. When I was at TPG, they had acquired Caesars, the, the gaming and casino company, right before the, the Great Recession. And so they had owned that. I came in, I was put on the, the portfolio management team of that. And so that was a business that I got to follow. That ended up being a very poor investment for them where they lost a significant amount of equity. The thesis that, that gaming 
was resilient and recession-proof was not the case as the Great Recession happened. But I also got to work on a small team that did the most successful deal in TPG's history, which was a generics pharmaceutical business that we acquired. We would go to Las Vegas for, for board meetings. I think the the greatest comp that I got was probably skipping the line at a buffet. So nothing too crazy. Growing up in Florida, my brother and I would have conversations when we were younger about, wouldn't it be fun to start a business together? And we always kind of had that in, in the back of our mind as we started going through our business careers. You hear many stories about family members that get into business together and don't speak. And that's obviously terrible. But I will say, when you get it right, it's really magic. Getting into this, my brother and I were always super close. And I said, win, draw, or lose, I get to spend a ton of time with somebody that I deeply care about. And they'll be with you your entire life. He similarly went to Harvard, started at Goldman Sachs, did real estate, private equity, and then was at a firm called the Baupost Group. And throughout both of our careers, we were always looking at different businesses and, and thinking, is this something that, that we could do? And we always would talk about the idea of buying a high quality, durable business for, for a reasonable price. And I'd say, that's great, but we, we got to find something. Then we came across the quick service restaurant industry. We knew somebody that had started to buy some restaurants and there was a lot to like about the industry. We liked how durable it was, the business and it hung in there through thick and thin and even in recessions. Sales were able to hold to almost flat where there's not a lot of businesses that do that. And then we also really liked the fact that we could scale the business over time. So we could start small, but we could grow a business that was excellent and large as we continued to acquire over time. And so we looked at the entire quick service landscape and said, if we could pick any brands, what brands would we pick? And what we were really looking for is first was brand quality. Um, we wanted to be doing this for a long time. And so if we're going to be doing this for a long time. We need a brand that's going to be around for a long time. Second, we cared a lot about the franchisor-franchisee relationship, where that relationship is super important. And 95 plus percent of the time you're aligned, but there are certain way, times that you're not necessarily aligned and, and how the franchisor handles that is, is super important for the health of the franchise system. We wanted a brand that had really attractive new build and, and remodel economics. Part of my brother's skill set was on the real estate side. And we thought that if we could build restaurants and create value through that, that would be a lever to create upside as we went through this. And then last was valuation. We wanted something that had reasonable multiples where we were going to be able to make money through cash flow. Before we get into franchise or franchisee relationship, you can just think of a restaurant brand. And on one end of the spectrum, you have the Chipotle and Starbucks where they manage the brand and they also operate the restaurants. They don't use franchisees in their system. Then you can have systems where you do have that franchisor franchisee dynamic. And so what happens there is you have the franchisor, they're responsible for the brand, the marketing, the menu, and then the franchisee's primary job is to operate great restaurants. The, the franchisee has control over hiring in the restaurant and how they run the restaurant. And they also have control 
overpricing. Where it can really work well with this franchise or franchisee relationship is you have a brand that's doing a great job of setting the strategy, setting the marketing, and you have these individual small business operators that are closer to the employees, closer to the restaurants, doing a great job running them. And then they're investing their own capital and growing the brand and building restaurants and remodeling restaurants. And so a benefit for the franchisor when you have that model is they're able to grow in a capital efficient manner. If a restaurant opens up, the franchisee puts up the capital to possibly buy the land. They've definitely put up the capital to build the restaurant. And that's okay because they have the earning stream that comes from that new build restaurant, but it requires a meaningful capital investment. Whereas the franchisor will get a share, typically will get a share of the revenue. So there'll be a percentage of revenue, which is called a royalty. And that's how the franchisor is making money. So my brother and I had decided that we wanted to pursue this path of becoming a restaurant franchisee and it started conversations with Wendy's. But we both had great jobs. We both had great careers that most people don't want to leave. And so we wanted to see if we could find a deal and line up a deal before we left those jobs. And we worked with Wendy's and were able to get approved into that system and portfolio had come up that we had bid on, were selected by Wendy's corporate who was selling the portfolio. And so at that point, once we had something lined up, it was a high probability that it was going to be, that it was going to close. That's when we informed our employer. And I remember going to my employer, I was at Carlisle at the time, and Wendy's had some rules about, they wanted to make sure that we went through restaurant training, which was going to take three months full time before closing. Wendy's had set a date three months out when closing was going to be. And so I went to go tell my boss that this is what I'm going to go do. I'm doing it with my brother and they're going to require me to do three months of training before we close in three months. And they said, that's all great, but you have a three month notice period. So we worked something out where I would come into Carlisle in the morning, would do my job for a few hours. Then come lunchtime, I would walk over to a Wendy's that was a few blocks away. I'd change my shirt. I'd put on my Wendy's hat and I'd work lunch there. And then at nighttime, I would watch my training videos for Wendy's so I was prepared the next day when I came in. I'd never worked at a restaurant before, but training was awesome. You get to see how much goes into it. And there's training for literally everything. How you wash your hands. You realize that a lot of people don't even wash their hands properly. So the training systems are really good. And I went through every position. So first day I was on drinks, then you'd go around each of the crew positions. So you learned how to do the fryer, you learn how to do sandwiches. And my friends at work, I got a total kick out of this. So oftentimes they'd come over on their lunch breaks just to watch me. And I remember one of them joking, he said, I've seen you through thick and thin. I've never seen you look more stressed than you did on the sandwich station line. So the jobs in the restaurant, you, you really gain an appreciation for them. You can't just step up day one and, and be good or be fast. And I was working in a New York City location, which has a ton of volume, especially for lunchtime. So sometimes if I go too slowly, I get bumped to the side and they take over. But the good thing is, is there are great training programs in place, but it takes more than a few days, probably a couple of weeks to, to really become proficient in each of those positions. My favorite position, and what I got best at is the fry station. So if there's ever a situation where I walk into a restaurant and they need me to jump online, that's, that's my happy place.
When we entered the system, the Wendy's company was in the process of doing a refranchising, which means that they were selling some of their company-owned restaurants. That was the portfolio that we bid on and were awarded for it. And there were a couple of things we were looking for, but mostly we were being opportunistic. There were parts of the country, call it California, that were further away from where we wanted to live and we didn't want to be on a plane all the time that we ruled out. And there were certain size specifications that we wanted where we wanted to have enough scale, let's call that 15 plus restaurants, where we would be able to invest in a high quality leadership team right out of the gates. And so within those confines, we tried to be opportunistic and a portfolio for the restaurants in Norfolk, Virginia Beach, Virginia came along and and that's what we bid on and has been a part of our story ever since. The first portfolio of restaurants that we bought, it was 30 restaurants and we were going to finance it with debt and equity. So the first part of that was seeing how much debt financing we could get and what we thought the the right level of debt financing was so that we could make sure we were putting a healthy capital structure on the business. And from there, that left a certain amount of equity. And so we were leaving our careers. We were going all in on this. So my brother and I put everything that we had other than call it a year of run rate for expenses. The only time I really doubted the decision to go down this entrepreneurial restaurant path was a couple of weeks into our first acquisition. We were taking small salaries that didn't cover our living expenses in, in New York. And we knew we had to do well with the investment that we had made. And so out of the gates, sales were unexplicably down. Nobody could really understand why. We didn't know if we had bought a business off numbers that were maybe overstated, were the operations worse because of us? Were people distracted with the transition? We didn't know, but sales were down and this business that we needed to do well wasn't doing well. One of the really scary things about starting off on our own was you learn in investing to diversify. It's one of the first things that you learn. And what we were doing with our first business was the opposite. We took our entire nest egg and put that egg in one basket. And I can assure you, we were going to watch that egg super closely. (laughs) We were betting our careers that this would go well. You hear about entrepreneurship and sometimes it could be feast or famine. And part of the reason we got into this is we wanted a high probability shot on goal. We were both leaving awesome careers. I had just gotten engaged. My brother had kids. Failing was not a good option or, or an acceptable option for us as we were starting. So we wanted to know the business as well as we possibly could. We got an apartment down in Virginia in the middle of the restaurants and spent a significant amount of time learning the business, being around the team. One of the first things that we did is we went around to the training general managers. And what that means is the general manager is the person that runs the restaurant. Training general managers are the best of the best. Those are where you'll send people to train and they run the best restaurants. So my brother and I decided that it'd be a great idea to do sit downs with the training restaurant managers. And I recall our first one, we sat down with a woman and we said, you run an amazing restaurant. We're trying to learn this business inside and out. We want to hear about what you do to be so successful. And she looked back at us and she goes, I want to make one thing clear. You're not my boss. And I just remember looking at my brother and go, this is not going like we thought it was. And she proceeded to say, uh, the customer is my boss. And I learned that a long time ago. You guys may sign the check, but the customer is the one that puts us all in business and, and gives us the funds for what we need to do. And as I got to know that person more, I mean, she had an incredible story. 
she started her career in the restaurants. She was homeless. She took two jobs. She took a job at a hotel, so she had a place to sleep. And she took a job at, at a restaurant. And she said the reason she became a training general manager is she wanted to provide the same opportunity that the industry gave her for other people. And that's what she has the opportunity to do by being a training manager. She's still with us and she's still training our next generation of leaders. I joke now that the restaurant business is easy to understand. It's hard to operate well. And we knew the business from a financial and from an investor's perspective, but I don't think we truly understood what made the business click. When you're in grade school and there's a question on a math test, what's two plus two? There is a clear right and clear wrong answer to that question. The business world's a lot more murky. So in advance, nobody really knows the right answers. We, oftentimes we figure them out after the fact. This can apply to new hires, acquiring a new market. And so we're all trying to make our best judgments. And so a lot of what spending time with the team and spending time with the restaurants taught us over the first year really informed what our philosophy would become for Delight Restaurant Group. I'll give an example of that. One of our first meetings with the general managers was to announce our new bonus program. And we thought we were putting in the super generous bonus program where any increase in profit dollars was gonna get shared with the general manager and their management team. And we got up and we told them, here's how you're gonna increase profitability. And we told them you're gonna grow sales and the way you're gonna grow sales is you're gonna run faster service times. Because if you can run faster service times, you get more throughput and you grow sales. We had looked at a number of other restaurant franchisees and we had looked at certain expense items, let's say food costs, for example. And we said, this is what we run on food costs. If we operate at standard, we can run at this better target and that's gonna increase profitability and we're gonna share that. And, and we thought we had nailed it. Like this was, the, this was the way to do it, align incentives, tell them what needed to be done and the magic would happen. And a couple of months went by and, and nothing really happened. And so we were scratching our head. And, and what we realized is when we were talking about how to grow sales, it wasn't just saying, hey, go faster. Like, that's not that insightful. The real conversation is, well, how do you run better speed of service? And let's talk about that. How do you build a schedule that where you're going to have labor at the right times of the day? Because our business will peak at lunch. It'll come down in the afternoon. It may peak at dinner and it may come down. So for the labor hours that we're going to use, are we spending that in the right areas? And then once you have the right number of people in the building, are you deploying those people correctly? So are you putting them on the right positions that they need to be on? Or are they working positions that, that aren't gonna help you with your speed and efficiency? And so really teaching the business and investing in training and investing in development and education was a big unlock in our approach to the business. And now we really have it. So those financial outcomes are outcomes. And we don't lead with financials, we don't lead with business results. Now we lead with people and we want great people. We run a meritocracy so that people are growing within, from within and they see that amongst the team. And then once you have those awesome people, you're training and developing them. And if you have great people that are trained and developed, you're gonna have happy customers. You're gonna have delighted customers. And if you have delighted customers, they know what's happening in these restaurants. and they're going to vote with their wallets and, and they're going to come back to places that they're getting, having an awesome experience and having awesome food from. 
Um, and so those financial outcomes, which we were so focused on at the beginning of our career, you realize are really just outcomes and you've got to leave them there and focus on the inputs that truly matter. The most important part of trying to be a grant franchisee is running a great operation. And where people get into trouble sometimes is one, they'll treat the business like an ATM machine, which it's not. It requires a lot of attention and requires a lot of care. The second way people can get into trouble is they try to cut corners. Wendy's talks about it because that's why we've got square patties. Dave Thomas would talk about not cutting corners. And so we always try to do the right thing, always try to deliver a quality product. You're not doing yourself any favors by skimping on some amount of food to try to help with your food costs. You want to make sure you're, you're always giving the customer an awesome experience because where you really do well in this business is driving sales over time. That's what's super valuable, much more so than saving an extra penny here or there. There's a lot about this industry that I say is underappreciated or misunderstood. And so one area that is, these are amazing training grounds. If someone comes to me and says, I wanna learn business, I say, pay attention to what happens to you around the restaurant. You will learn customer service, you will learn teamwork, you will learn marketing, you will learn about pricing. You're gonna learn a lot about operations and you can also learn a lot about finance if you're paying attention to the P&Ls. There's a saying we have internally where we say, we wanna train people so well that they can leave us, but we wanna treat them so well that they wanna stay. And sometimes you do have people leave. That may be a high school kid that's moving on. And sometimes you have people that may have come in and learned an awesome skill set and got an opportunity to do something well, and that's awesome. But one of the things I think people really underestimate about the industry is there is the potential for really fast career growth. I'll give an example. We have a 21-year-old that is the general manager. So he's the person responsible for running a $2 million restaurant. I mean, he grew up in Chicago. He was in a tough neighborhood. His parent that was raising him had some addiction issues. He got sent down to Virginia to live with his aunt and uncle and started working at Wendy's when he was in high school. And you look at where he is today running a business. I know I wasn't running a $2 million business when I was at his age. He's been able to have his mom move down to Virginia with him and they get to live together and he helps take care of her. So it is a very humbling business. You meet some truly incredible people along the way. We may not know everything about the restaurant, but what we could control is if the team needed anything or they needed anything from us, we were always gonna be there to support them and make sure that they had the resources they needed to be successful. There's a story we joke about now. Shortly after acquisition, we had to do a swap out of our computers in the back of the house. And so we swapped out the computers. We had the old computers sitting in the back of the house. And one of the general managers calls, who always keeps your restaurant looking super clean and tidy, and said, I've got these computers in the back of the house. Uh, I need someone to pick them up. So I looked around and I realized that I guess we're the IT guy as well. So we got a U-Haul, got a dolly, started driving in stores, started picking them up. And I was walking out of one restaurant and saw a customer eating and had my boxes, had my dolly. And I stopped to ask him how his food was, see if the fries were hot, see if there was anything else we could do. And as I started to walk away, he said, you know what? It's really nice that even the trash man at Wendy's cares about the customer experience. So leading up to COVID, everything was going really well. Our original Wendy's portfolio was going great. We had helped turn the operations there. Wendy's had just launched breakfast, which seemed like it was going to be really successful. We had acquired some Taco Bells afterwards, helped turn that operating market, and had our eye towards growth. And then COVID happens. In the course of a week, or seems to our salesman, from breaking records 
to being down 25 to 35%, which is absolutely terrifying in this business. If sales are down that much, you're losing money. And so we were running forecasts internally to say, how long can we continue to go on like this? And what are levers that we can pull, whether that's with our vendors, our landlords, our franchisor, that can help buy us time, because everybody at that moment in time, how long this would continue for. We got with our team, and I would listen to podcasts like this to learn about how business leaders deal with certain situations. And one of the things that I learned along the way was you don't have to sugarcoat everything. You want people to be on the same page and know what the state of the business is. We pulled all our general managers together on a phone call in the early days of COVID because at that point there was a lot of noise going on where you were hearing stories in the industry of salaries just being arbitrarily cut across the board, people being furloughed or laid off. And so we brought them on a call and we told them, this is the state of the business, where we are, we're losing money each day and we're not going to do anything that impacts you. We're going to make all of you guys whole, but we're going to look at anything that we can do that's within our control to give us more time to get to the other side of this. Because we did always believe that we'd get to the other side of it. Anything like that is on the table. And we told them we needed them to be at their best and great operators shined in tough times. And luckily in, in coming months after that, the sales started to slowly come back, then turn positive. And then it turned into a very good environment where we had the ability to operate drive-throughs, which was safe, efficient. People started to get sick of eating frozen meals at home all the time. And the business came back in a solid way that summer. So sales were down 25 to 35%. And we thought that was a lot. And then we found out that our distributor who delivers us all of our product was going bankrupt. We had to go to another distributor. Typically, these brands will take months for that transition to make sure that it goes seamlessly. We were gonna have to do that over the course of a week. So we would have trucks being delivered from the new vendor that hadn't figured out all the routes yet, just to the market. And we would have general managers and above store leaders come meet that truck and then drive the product to the restaurants. And then we thought that, like how much worse can it get after that? And then there was rumors of a beef shortage within the Wendy system. It's hard being a hamburger company if you don't have hamburgers to sell. COVID really affected supply chains. And one of the things that I learned is that some of these supply chains are a lot more manual than you expect. And when you start having COVID outbreaks at a plant and you can't process uh, what you need to at that plant, it manifests itself in, in pretty real ways. But the beginning of COVID, it was, it was all hands on deck. My brother and his wife were, were having a baby in the, in the middle of March. Normally, we do a good job of covering for one another if we have something personal like that going on. Our view towards it was there's only one way through it, and we've got to get to the other side, and the world will come back, and we just have to do everything in our control to be able to manage our cash position and manage our cash flow so that we could make sure that we got to the other side of it. We had about 60 restaurants at that time. Today, we're significantly removed from when we started COVID, and we still haven't gotten back to normal. Typically, pre-COVID, you'd have 70% of your business coming through the drive-through. You'd have 30% of your business coming through the dining room. We shut down that 30% and sales were up. So that was strong performance and we felt good about that, but it was very unnatural. And then you fast forward to today and in the current environment, you hear a lot of headlines about inflationary pressures and that's on the food costs and the commodity side. That's also on the labor side. And so we talk to people that have been around the industry for decades, and they say they've never seen a more challenging time to operate restaurants. So every day we continue to push forward and find ways to be creative and try
try to offer a great experience to our employees and customers, but I still don't think we've returned to quote unquote normal times. We have uh, 155 restaurants now. We had around 60 restaurants going into COVID. And then we had had one deal lined up that got put on pause because of COVID and where everyone just decided to let's wait and see what happens. And as the world comes back a little bit, we can revisit it. And then there was another situation where the the biggest Wendy's and Pizza Hut franchisee, which was called NPC, was heading towards bankruptcy before COVID and had gone into bankruptcy. And we were involved in that situation. And they were looking at splitting up their Wendy's business. And the Wendy's company got in the middle of it and had pulled together this consortium of preferred franchisees. We were part of that and we were able to acquire the Raleigh, North Carolina market, which we were really excited about. We acquired the Taco Bells about two years after we started. If we had shown up at Yum, which owns Taco Bell, KFC, and Pizza Hut, but back when we were beginning, they probably would have said, you've never worked in a restaurant, what are you doing here? You guys are finance people and investors, you're not, you're not operators. And what we were able to prove with our first Wendy's portfolio is that we were willing to get into the weeds. We were able to build really strong teams. We were very close to the business. And you operate great restaurants, and then you continue to invest and build new restaurants and remodeling restaurants. That's what the ideal franchisee looks like. The great thing about the systems that we're in is one, they're great brands. We think we're gonna be around for a long time. And two, they're very large. And so if you have a restaurant system with 6,000 restaurants, even getting to 5% of that is 300 restaurants. So we're obviously like really happy with where we started to where we are today. This was the goal when we set out and we said, where can we be in five years? I think we would have been really pleased where we are today. And as we look ahead, I think we have the ability to continue building on this platform and infrastructure and culture that we have with Delight Restaurant Group and hopefully can become two to 300 restaurants in each of the brands that we operate in. But we always try to make sure that we're operating what we have really well. That's what the franchisor looks at their franchisees to do. And so we always say if, if we run great restaurants and we're excellent franchisees, then growth will happen and good things will come. We got into this business because we thought it was a high quality business. And one of the things that we've really enjoyed about it has given us a bunch of energy and a bunch of motivation is the people side of it. And we think we're building this part of the world that operates with a lot of the principles that we believe in. We've created this meritocratic environment where people are rewarded for doing great things. We have this unique culture of a family environment where people truly know each other and, and really care about each other. And we think we're on to something special with what we're building. And we want to continue building on the platform that we have. The hope is we can continue to be great. If we can be great, I think we can get to five, 600 restaurants. And what's super exciting about that is those are all roles and responsibilities that our team is going to be able to, to grow into over time. There's a Dave Thomas quote that I love. He says, you can do what you want to do. You can be what you want to be. And that's a quote we use with our team. It's something that we believe and take to heart. And we try to make examples of people every day. Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media and is hosted by me, Mesh Lakani. Thank you to Andrew Krumholtz for sharing your story with us. To find out more about Delight Restaurant Group, visit delightrg.com. This episode was produced and mixed by Stephanie Horton and Ramsey Yunt with our senior producer, Olivia Briley. 
Our assistant producer is Haas Nasser. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. And of course, we appreciate you sharing this with your friends and subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. For more information on Founder Stories, visit SayHiLola.com. Until next time.